This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday and that means it's time for our crack strategy panel and pending council approvals, as you heard in Bob's news. As of next week, here in Toronto and in Peel, masks will be mandatory in indoor spaces. The municipalities wanted the Ford government to make a province-wide order on this, but Queen's Park packs the buck back to them. The onuses will be on businesses to ensure that people comply. And while, for instance, the mayor of Mississauga is talking about stepped-up bylaw enforcement, Mayor John Tari, as you heard, is relying on people's better instincts to obey. And in Ottawa, there is a bit of a brouhaha about outsourcing a nearly billion-dollar program to a charity with close tries with close ties to the Trudeaus. Meanwhile, at Queen's Park, there's talk of a cabinet shuffle and topping the list of potential dumpies is long-term care minister, Dr. Marilee Fullerton. So let's begin there. First, let me give you the numbers. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village and a former Toronto City Councillor, as well as Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Okay, let us start with John. So this rumoured cabinet shuffle at Queen's Park, is it going to happen? And who do you think will be shuffled? Well, it's uh, at this stage, it's exactly that, Libby. Uh, it's a rumor. Uh, and uh, obviously, with, with cabinet shuffles, the only people that know um, um, aren't saying anything. And people that say anything aren't, aren't in the know, as, as the saying goes. And, and Charles can attest to that. I'm sure he always gets asked those questions when it's the Liberals. But, um, you know, it, it, I, there's a lot of discussion whether or not it's time for a cabinet shuffle. The, the Premier has worked with this, this cabinet for some time. Um, and there's also some reason to think that, okay, well, COVID, you had a COVID cabinet leading up to uh, the recovery, but also now that we're in sort of, you know, a recovery stage and, and getting close to phase three in, in some places, uh, and certainly in Toronto being in, being in phase two, that there's an argument to be made that maybe he should look at some of the some of the cabinet ministers and who's ready to kind of take the next step uh, in, in the recovery stage and, and, and make some moves. But you know, having said that, you've got some really strong cabinet ministers who have really performed well during this COVID. And I'm talking people like Minister Beth and Falvey, who you don't see a lot of, but, but certainly as a Treasury Board president, <clears throat> makes a lot of really tough decisions on the, on the inside. But Rod Phillips, Minister Phillips, Minister, um, uh, Monty McNaughton. So you've got some really good ones that are, are still there. And there might be some tickling along the edges. And that's, I think that's where the media starts to focus on. 
Okay. Well, uh, Charles, uh, your name was invoked. What do you think? Should he or will he replace the Minister of Long-Term Care? Uh, she has not appeared sure-footed at all times, but she does have experience in the file. She's a doctor uh, and she's got the toughest assignment. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I don't think she's long for the cabinet. Um, she went from being Minister of Training Colleges and Universities just over a year ago to uh, the relative demotion of long-term care, and the timing could not have been worse in terms of the you know, horrific state of our long-term care and nursing home facilities in Wait Ontario. Wait a minute, you consider that a demotion? Like... Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, essentially, she became an associate minister to the Minister of Health. And that is really the, the big focus, which is what happens with regards to Minister Elliott. I mean, I don't think anyone thinks that she has performed poorly, but I noticed that Quebec's premier was quick to dump its Minister of Health in light of uh, what happened uh, in their long-term care centre. So the question is whether Minister Fullerton uh, falling on her sword is sufficient, given um, just how incredibly bad the situation with our long-term care facilities has been. But they they set up a ministry, so presumably uh, Minister Elliott d- didn't do anything with that file. They gave it its own ministry, which uh, for our friends at CARP was a big, important move. It means it it, it got its own importance, and now it was fudged. The situation was terrible, but uh, I wonder if you can lay that at the feet of the ministry, Minister of Health and the Deputy Premier, or if it got its own ministry. Uh, yeah. Karen? I, I, sorry, oh. go ahead. Oh, no, it's okay, Charles, did you? Charles, no, go no, finish no, your no, thought. Over to you, over to you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think it, it is hard because we didn't uh, we didn't hear from the Minister of Long-Term Care at all. It was Christine Minister Elliott that was really um, the spokesperson for on behalf of the Cabinet. So I think that the Premier does have to take some kind of action, whether it's a full shuffle or not, I'm not sure, because uh, to, to John's point, many of the Cabinet has been performing very well. And during a recovery, I think you want as much stability as possible. But there is no question that something has to be done politically uh, in the long-term care portfolio because it's just been a, a tragedy and there has to be some accountability there and it falls upon the minister. Uh, yeah. Karen, do you think, what do you think of the uh, performance of Christine Elliott? Well, I, you know, I think she, uh, there's no, she's been very public and very visible and, uh, you know, dealing with facts that, you know, that, uh, the change, I mean, even as we, you know, we're, we're going to talk about face coverings and mask wearing, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was recommended not to wear a mask, and now they're making them mandatory. So in the face of shifting information, I, I think she did the best job she could possibly do, um, irrespective of let's take out long-term care, because that was an unmitigated disaster. I think we all can agree. But uh, I think that uh, she was, you know, a, a, um, a strong and uh, a consistent voice that was, um, you know, I, and I think did, did credit to the cabinet. Uh, Karen, before we move on, did you get to see your dad? I did get to see my dad. <laughs> and it was so wonderful. <laughs> Great. It news. was really wonderful, yeah. And and was it all socially distanced and all of that? Oh my gosh. It was yeah, socially distanced, sanitized, mask wearing. Um, I mean, that part was difficult because he had basically been in his room for four months 
and he had to come out of his room to see me. <laughs> so that was a bit of a struggle, but um, it was worth it. It was worth it for sure. Did you find him well or deteriorated? Uh, he's deteriorated. There's no question. Uh, he, he's confused and he doesn't understand what's going on. And he um, certainly in, in whether that would have happened anyway, I don't know. But not seeing him for four months, it was certainly more pronounced. I'm sorry to hear that. That's that's what we're hearing from a lot of people, by the way, is that is that in the course of this, because of the short staffing and everything, is that, that people have deteriorated. And, and that is, I think, a part of the tragedy that, that we are, you know, just getting to the beginning of understanding. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, and back to Minister Fullerton, John, I mean, one... one uh, astonishing thing last week was, uh, you know, we, we had interviewed um, a plaintiff who is suing uh, one of the long-term care facilities. And one of her issues is that she was barred from moving her, her father to a hospital from long-term care. And we've heard this from many, many people. And, and uh, the minister got up in the house and said, anybody who wanted to be moved to a hospital could, which was like just really not true John yeah yeah no I I I, I know Libby that it's one of those um, you know I, I think it's important to note that the long-term care uh, debacle uh, you know it's far it was far, far uh, a problem way before you know Minister Fullerton was even was even elected as an NPP let alone as a minister and it dates back to to previous governments so I think that's important to note. It doesn't make anything better, obviously, but I think the fact that the Premier has recognized that it is a problem and that he's made it such a huge focus, um, you know, in his in his daily addresses and as a result of what we've seen of, of the tragedy that's happened over COVID, you know, tells you that there's no question that that is going to be a ministry that if there is a shuffle, likely will have a very strong uh, minister attached to it to give the, the industry, the sector, and, and healthcare providers the confidence that the Premier is serious about what he wants to do with long-term care. Now, I must say, you know, Minister, minister Fulton on her own is a very strong and very competent minister, and, and I think in, in some cases has, you know, um, comported herself well, you know, leading up to this, this particular challenge. But, but again, I think, you know, given, given what's happened and given what we're seeing, and, and there's, there's a huge, quite frankly, right focus on long-term care, it's got to be one of those ministries that if there's a shuffle, it's, it's going to be one that everyone's going to be watching to see who he puts in there. Well, yeah, there, there, no one argues that this this is a problem that dates back through multiple administrations. But, uh, you know, what I pointed was something that shows that, that uh, you know, she just doesn't know what's going on on the ground. I, I found that actually uh, quite a bit that, you know, uh, we hear one thing from people who are telling us what is happening on the ground, and then you hear something totally different from a minister because that's what they're being told by their officials. Mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's unfortunate. Um, yeah, and, and we see that all the time. We see that, quite, quite frankly, in, in, in various governments and, and, and in ministerial shakeups, you know, where you know, you can only make so many mistakes um, before. Before, not only does the uh, you saw this with 
you know, unfortunately with Lisa Thompson, the Minister of Education, when she first got appointed in education, that, that you know, a couple of missteps here and there, and obviously she was shuffled out of that and, and went into government services. But, you know, I think that governments want to, by and large, govern with a strong core of cabinet ministers who are the ones that are dealing with key issues and, and moving the agenda forward. But every once in a while, you'll get a minister, no matter what, what portfolio that does, that underperforms, and and it gets it's okay until it gets to a point where everybody starts focusing the missteps, and then you have to change it. Okay, what about uh, Lisa Thompson and Lisa McLeod? Are they going to be? They were they were both uh, demoted, and are they both going to be shuffled out now, Charles? Well, that's a it's a tough one because you know in terms of cabinet making, geography um, becomes an issue, and. Um, both Minister McLeod and Minister Fullerton uh, are from the Ottawa area. And um, so I, I wouldn't say Minister McLeod has covered herself in glory in her new portfolio. Um, and, but I mean, it's very unlikely that you would see both Minister Fullerton and Minister McLeod dropped because really the only other conservative there is a first-time MPP by the name of Jeremy Roberts from Ottawa West Nepean, and it might be a bit soon for him to uh, to be joining the cabinet, not to mention, you know, maintaining some degree of uh, gender representation. Uh, dropping two female ministers and replacing them with a male is, uh, is a bit of an open question. One person I think we should be looking for, though, um, is uh, Natalia Kusindova, um, largely because she took off time as an MPP to reassume her former job as a nurse and was literally working on the front lines of Mississauga hospitals. And um, big shout out to Ms. Kusendova in that regard. That was uh, really, really tremendous on her part. So I won't be surprised if, uh, if among the new faces she is included. Uh on the other side of the ledger, in a, a good performance now, uh, I, this sort of gobsmacked me. Uh, was it a week or 10 days ago? Uh, Finance Minister Rod Phillips called out Desjardins Auto Insurance for failing to give refunds to people. Uh, when we've covered that here on this show, we've had lots of complaints about this. And lo and behold, yesterday, Desjardins found a 100 and $25 million, which they are automatically going to give to people. I mean, you know, the guy opens his mouth and look what happens. <laughs> yeah. Funny how that, I wish funny like, how that let's happens. Let's get them to call Visa and have them lower their rates. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Rod, I have a few calls I'd like you to make. <laughs> you know, though, I'll just say this, and, and uh, on, on the issue, I think the Premier started this, you know, basically, um, um, you know, during his daily press conferences where there'd be certain companies that were, you know, and, and, and people were yearning for it, you know, during the COVID period. Oh, the Pisa Terry fiasco with the $30 oh. wipes, remember that. Oh, the, that one where he basically said, you know what, or even, you know, even as, as, as landlords and, and tenants, you know, he would, or landlords specifically, he said, look, it, don't let me uh, come out and name you or, or do something. Like he was actually, I think that led to his huge popularity. But the fact that the Rod Phillips, the minister named uh, Desjardins, and then a week later they decide to do it. Well, I think good, good on the minister for doing it, quite frankly. And, and I think if that's what it takes for, for companies to, uh, uh, you know, to, to abide by, by, by doing certain things, then I think you're going to see a lot more of that. Well, we've, we've seen quite a bit of it. And you mentioned the premier, and now throughout the course of this, his, his popularity ratings have gone through the roof. 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, I think it's better to do the moral suasion than the bylaw. You know, just to say, like, listen, just do the right thing or I'm going to call you out on it. And I think that that's a much more effective strategy than trying to, you know, legislate in a time where we just really want people just to do the right thing. So you think, uh, Karen, that they were right not to put in this province-wide bylaw on the masks and just leave it to the municipalities? I do. I do. I think that that was uh, because they have a broader picture. In, you know, they the, the province is made up of, you know, Kenora, Thunder Bay, Windsor, uh, Toronto, of course, Peel. And Kingston. And, you know, Kingston hasn't had a case. Wait, wait, no. Kingston now has 27 cases as of Oh, now they have 27 as of last uh, as they, they had the, those cases all connected to that nail salon. Okay. Um, so, so they had no yeah, cases. Yeah, on that one. Yeah. But, I, you know, I think that when, you know, um, in Toronto, lots of shops are opening up where face masks are mandatory anyway. The hair cutting places, nail salons. So... I don't think that the province needed to take that step. I think they were right to say to the municipalities, manage your situation locally. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, when the masks are mandatory in a place of of business, uh, they don't all enforce it, especially if it's somebody who's not the owner, uh, who's an employee. Uh, You know, business is so tentative to begin with. I think they're hesitating to hassle anybody. And I think that could be a problem, though, you know, when it's getting, uh, I guess, more socially acceptable. I don't know, because I, I, you know, I remember my one of my first ventures into a business, you know, there was one other person in the store who refused to wear a mask and, and it kind of uh, put me off, I must say. Mm-hmm. OK, let's but it, it just just on that note about masks, like we're opening our camps on July 6th. Oh, congratulations. Um, and, yeah, which we're really excited about. Um, but if the masks are mandatory for the kids, it just presents a problem for our counselors because our counselors, we don't want them adjusting masks on kids. And uh, some of the kids have disabilities, and so it may not be possible for the kids to put the masks on themselves. So those are the things we're just going to have to work through, of course, if it becomes mandatory, because right now only children under two are exempted, or if you have a medical condition, is the proposal that they're making, which it, it's just, um, you know, things to consider. Okay, well, uh, your counselors will have to wear masks, presumably. Oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. They wear shields. Okay, uh, let's take a call from David in Toronto. Hi, David. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? Good. First time on the show. Oh. I just saw you guys on Twitter, so I decided to jump on to see uh, what you guys were talking about. There you got the first time speak, bell. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what would you like to talk about? You want to talk about the shuffle? Yeah, just, uh, you know, there, it, it's about that time of um, the term, right? We uh, all expected something to happen around the mid-election uh, mid, um, mark, and uh, this is definitely the time, and there were some speculations on when that's going to happen, but I, I think the summer is great um, in terms of who's in, who's out. I totally agree with the comments that were made before, right? Um some people can only make so many mistakes until uh, some action has to be done. So um, I, I think this is a good chance for some of the younger people, um, the younger MPPs, more diverse, like John said, uh, Natalia Kuzindova, you know, sort of that cohort, um, that age group, um, they connect with the youth really well. Um, yeah, I think there's a real opportunity there. And uh, in terms of ministers, I think that can go. I, I think one um, is Minister Raymond Cho. Um, that's a, a 
haven't seen him do a lot. He's getting up there. Uh, you seem to have it. something against older people. You know, uh, we we cater to older people here. No, <laughs> no, no. That's not it's not what I'm saying at all. Um, I, I think in terms of like communications perspective and. Uh, you know, obviously the experiences there, some of uh, the ministers have been MPPs for a really long time. They know how the Cruise Park, uh, you know, legislature and all of that bureaucracy process works. So that's definitely valuable. Okay, um, David. Yeah. Thanks for that. Uh, I don't I know. Think, is... Libby, you're, I think David was talking about Stancho as one of the one of the up and comers who um, who's been just tremendous and, and as a parliamentary assistant currently, I think is is one of those that's been slated as a potential cabinet minister. Yeah, I think he's talking about Raymond Cho though, who's oh, the current who is uh, who is the current minister of seniors and who is uh, he's he is up there in age. That's uh, not a reason, I, I think, to replace somebody. But he has <laughs> not been that visible, I guess. He also made a famous appearance at a recent event where minister, with Minister Mulroney, where he appeared in the form of a cardboard cutout. <laughs> practicing practicing safe COVID practices and protocol, yep. I'd say, Charles. One way to do it. They actually had the mask. Uh, they had a real mask on top of the of the cutout. So oh. It was just oh, really? Okay, oh, I yeah. missed that. But, but David, David makes an interesting point, though, regarding sort of the, the term, right? There's always sort of the, you know, I've always said to, to the folks who get into government that the time to be a cabinet minister is at the end of the term, not at the beginning of the term, because there is sort of the halfway point, and, and there's also, you know, talk of election readiness when, when then you start shuffling cabinets to make sure that the cabinet you got is the one that goes into, uh, into an election campaign. Okay, well, let us switch to Ottawa. So yesterday was the last of the daily briefings from Trudeau. Now they're going to be a couple times a week. And he has taken a bit of flack. Uh, they announced, Ottawa announced a program worth nearly a billion dollars to get uh, students uh, volunteering opportunities. And without a contract, he gave it to the WE charity, which the Trudeau family is involved with and is like a big international machine, quite frankly. Karen, what do you think of that? Well, you know, I'm of two minds. One is that, you know, the Daily Bread Food Bank um, stepped up and um, Second Harvest stepped up and became the distributor of government um, grants to to charities involving food security. So it's not without precedent. I I think it's just the the dollars amount that are being discussed, usually a billion-dollar type of program wouldn't be done without anything other than a handshake, so so to speak. Well, the yeah, they're making data. twenty million bucks from it at least. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, and again, it's it's politics is um, it's such that you, you just need to be transparent and appear to be transparent. So um, I, it, it doesn't serve him well that he's connected to the charity. John, what do you think of that? Well, it, it, what, uh, quite frankly, and this is the kind of this is the kind of issue that. That the prime minister, you know, was was needling sort of the, the harp of government when he was in opposition and during the campaign, and how he was going to change things and and make things better and make parliament work for you and uh, and not you know all this kind of all this kind of nonsense. But but so it's it's the, it's the actual hypocrisy that that, that that drives me crazy, Libby, because you know he was quick to criticize the other government for doing this kind of thing, and and also it's the, the cute the, too cute by half, which is there's there's a dollar value a dollar limit. That governments have, where they don't have to go to tender, they don't have to, they don't have to go to an RFP or, or to to get other bids in, uh, and it seems 
from from media reports that there was a number of times when the government gave uh, this organization money just below that, so they didn't have to. Uh, they didn't, there wasn't there wasn't a sort of a a, a tender um, uh, flag that was raised. So I think there's a lot of that that I think just rubs people the wrong way. I'm just glad that the conservatives have called for an audit or a full investigation of this because I think there might be something more to it. Well, yeah, and I I haven't checked recently, but you know I I'd, I'd like to see how much money the Kielbergers take out of that charity. <laughs> well, and that's the other thing too that that sort of you know the the questions that need to be answered. Yeah, Charles, does this uh, you have a problem with this? Well, we'll see. I mean, if there's anything untoward going on, um, you know, I think that that should be um, brought to light. But I do know the reality is that this program will place upwards of 20,000 students in volunteer positions between now and October, that it will pay these students anywhere from 1000 to $5,000. And for every 100 hours spent, a student could receive $1,000. And, you know, just given where things are, vis-a-vis the pandemic and uh, the state of employment in this country. I mean, you had a lot of kids who had a lot of time on their hands and no money. So this seems like an entirely appropriate response in the context of um, uh, our response to the pandemic. The other thing I'd say is, you know, if it was, you know, we charities have done a lot of very, very important work with young people across Canada. If we were to substitute Heart and Stroke Foundation in place, you know, Heart and Stroke Foundation gets $900 million, um, I don't think anyone would be having nearly the problem that, oh, that don't some get folks me are having started. Now. Heart and Stroke has the highest expense cost administration that you the uh, of almost all the charities it's like 30 something percent of the money goes to actual programs for heart sounds like i do have you started (laughs) okay yes you do have me started so i don't know that heart and stroke is is the example we should be going by i was thinking more in terms of an organization that's more familiar to canadians but let's not lose sight of the point which is this is going to put a lot of young canadians to work this summer and and into the early fall and that's and that's important okay uh we are just about out of time tomorrow is canada day it'll be a strange one so what would you like to leave us with as we head into canada day starting with john well i you know just hopefully the weather will be good and it's supposed to be and and everybody can enjoy themselves while still practicing social distancing and and wearing masks i think we're the other issue that we were just talking about i think the city or just mentioned libby is the city the cities uh, are, are, you know, asking for a mandated uh, mask wearing, which uh, for indoor for indoor places. I went to a, a shopping mall just yesterday for the first time, and I would say about seventy percent of the people were wearing masks. Uh, I was wearing my mask, but when you walk into a store, the stores actually have uh, available masks for those who don't, and are asking them to wear them. Uh, so I think that's a good, a positive sign. Okay, Charles. Oh, we live in the greatest country in the world and so grateful for that fact. And uh, celebrating our national birthday is always a treat. I just say to everyone listening, um, stay safe, uh, maintain some degree of social distancing, stay outdoors in this beautiful weather if you can, but otherwise have a very happy Canada Day. And Karen? I'm actually in Ottawa right now, so I will be celebrating Canada Day in Ottawa. 
And uh, normally we would take the kids down and see the fireworks, but this year they're virtual. So <laughs> we're going to look forward to sitting in, inside and watching virtual fireworks and celebrating our nation's birthday. Okay. Well, happy Canada Day to all of you. Thank you so much for being with us. And we'll talk to you next week, if not sooner. Happy Thanks, Canada Wendy. Day. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.